Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us your promises. It gives us revelation of who you are. We would have no clue about Jesus if it weren't for your word. We would have no clue about the salvation that we have through his death and resurrection or the comfort and peace that only you can give through your Holy Spirit. Lord God, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for us today, that your word would go forth and your seeds of truth may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Weddings usually kind of follow the same general theme, right? White dress for the bride, tuxedo for the groom, same color dresses for the bridesmaids, and same color bow ties for the groomsmen. But that's not always the case. For instance, in 2015, a couple had a Minions-themed wedding, complete with someone dressed up as a Minion to serve as the witness. In 2013, Napster founder, by the way, anybody remember Napster? <laughs> Thanks, Brian, the one guy, okay. <laughs> Napster founder Sean Parker spent $10 million for a Lord of the Rings-themed wedding in California's Redwood Forest set to make it look like it was straight out of Rivendell. Now, this one is pretty cool in my opinion, but I could see how it could cost $10 million for something like this. The one that takes the cake, though, pun intended, was this wedding in 2017, the Taco Bell wedding. <laughs> Dan and Bianca won Taco Bell's Love and Tacos contest and were the first couple to get married in the chapel at Taco Bell's flagship restaurant in Las Vegas, you know, for everybody who just has that hankering to get married at a Taco Bell restaurant. The bride's bouquet and the groom's boutonniere were made out of hot sauce packets. Tacos were the main course at the reception, and the wedding cake was made out of Taco Bell's Cinnabon Delights. My question is, was it worth it? <laughs> well, many of you here sitting here are like, yes, it's worth it, I want that. I wish I had that type of wedding. There's a wedding that we're going to be talking about today that at first goes along like every other wedding in first century Judaism. But the twist comes during the reception. Most of you have heard this account before as it's one of the more famous accounts of Jesus' miracles. But we're going to see what the overall point of this event was and how that connects to us today. We ended last week with ending chapter 1 in the Gospel of John with the, with the first five of Jesus' disciples putting their faith in him as the Messiah. Now, this is interesting because John jumps from those experiences straight to Jesus' first miracle. And John is the only gospel writer to record this first miracle at this wedding. You can't find this account in any of the other gospels. As one biblical scholar noted, if Matthew had not been called yet to be Jesus' disciple, as this chronology would imply, this would help to explain why John is the only writer to include this event. John would have been the only gospel writer to have been at this event and serve as an eyewitness to this first miracle. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 2. It's in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 
If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 2, or you can look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 2, we're going to start with the very first two verses. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. If you remember from a couple weeks back, and remember I said if you can't see this all the way in the back, maybe you should move forward a little bit so you can see this. Here it is showing up here again. Okay, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, when we last looked at this, at this map, we see Cana here. It's in the same region as Nazareth, the region of Galilee up here. Nazareth, of course, was the hometown of Jesus. Depending on where Cana was, it was either only eight miles or even only three miles away from Nazareth. Nathaniel, who we talked about last week, was also from Cana, but because of the close proximity, the hosts of this wedding most likely knew Jesus' family, and that's why we see Jesus' mother and Jesus, and by extension, because he was a teacher, Jesus' disciples. Even though it was customary for party hosts to invite prominent religious teachers to their celebrations, since Jesus' mother was also there, he probably had at least a family-friend relationship with the wedding hosts. Weddings in this area and century were huge events. Today, it takes place, how, how long does it take? One day, right? The wedding and the reception all happen on the same day. Weddings in this area and century lasted for seven days. That's a lot of celebration, isn't it? That's seven days of feasting and drinking wine. And the host was expected to provide enough food and wine for all seven of these days. If somehow the food or wine ran out during the course of those seven days, it was scandalous. Show up in the tabloid of, of, of that town. And it would be the butt of jokes for a very, very long time. It was the absolutely worst thing to happen at a wedding, culture-wise. But yet, that's exactly what happens. Verses, verse 3. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the women's quarters at a wedding celebration were near the place where the wine was stored. So Mary would have found out first by way of whispers among the servants. Hey, did you hear? We, run out, we ran out of wine. Mary picks up on that and immediately runs to go find her son to tell him. But why? Why does Mary go to Jesus to tell him they've run out of wine? Did she think that he was going to miraculously do something about it? Well, it seems, like, it seems like it from her response in her conversation with Jesus. We know from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56, that Mary knew Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God during her time spent with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, before Jesus was even born. So yes, in response to the famous Christmas song, Mary did know. Because of this, when she goes to her son and tells him that the host had run out of wine, it wasn't to be a gossip. It wasn't to cause trouble. She did so with anticipation. Why else would she make that statement to him? They've run out of wine. Now, Jesus' response is life-changing for her. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, 
What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, when you read this, your cursory reaction is, wow, Jesus is kind of being a jerk to his own mom here, isn't he? But he's not. He's not being rude to his mom when he starts out by referring to her as woman. This was actually the customary term of respect given to a woman in that time period and culture, just like referring to a woman as ma'am today. But the odd thing about this address is that one didn't refer to their mom in this way. They called him mom. That's Jesus' point. Mary had grown accustomed to being completely involved in Jesus' life and having some kind of jurisdiction over it. Any women here, do you have that relationship with your children being so completely uh, tied into it? I mean, this is obviously understandable since she was his mom and had spent 30 years raising him. Think of it in, in, in a human way. But Jesus was unlike any other person who had ever existed. And Mary needed to learn that painful lesson. While, Je while, yes, Jesus was her human son, he was also a member of the Trinitarian Godhead and was ultimately beholden not to her, but to his father's plan and timing for him in his earthly ministry. That distancing came in the form of what follows Jesus' title to Mary when he says, what does that have to do with us? Or literally, what to me and to you. It was a common Hebrew idiom of the time. It essentially created a difference in rank and group. For instance, it's the same phrase that the demon shouts at Jesus, what business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Again, it's meant to create a distinction. In the demon's case, coming from the demonic realm, he's saying to Jesus, what business do you have interacting with the demonic realm? Get out of here. So in a way, Jesus is saying to Mary, a full human, albeit his own mother, what do your human desires and timing have to do with me? I am only beholden to my heavenly Father's plan and timing. As such, by this point, the Father had not revealed to Jesus when that timing would be. The phrase, my hour, is ultimately referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. The main and entire point that Jesus was on earth in the first place. Once Jesus started performing miracles, which is what Mary was asking him to do, that proved him as God, the Messiah, and therefore, Isaiah's prophesied suffering servant and started him down the road to the cross. If you think about it, in Jesus' mind, Mary was doing more than just asking him to perform a miracle. What she was really asking was for him to start heading towards the cross. That's powerful, isn't it? Since that was perfectly in the Father's hands, plan, and timing, Mary had no business or right to ask what she asked. Now, to be fair, Mary didn't realize what she was asking, but that's exactly why Jesus had to show her what she was really asking for. He had to teach her what she was really asking for. It wasn't just a magic trick to save their family, friends, honor, and reputation. It would be the first miracle 
which automatically sent Jesus headfirst towards the cross. God the Father was the only one who had the right to reveal when that should take place. It was a lot more at play here than Jesus simply following through or not with his mom's request. Mary's response is a curious one. She doesn't walk or run away in humiliation. She doesn't argue with Jesus or reply, How dare you! Instead, verse 5, His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. That was her only response. She doesn't say anything back to her son. She says to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now what this shows, as pointed out by biblical scholarship, is that Mary didn't fully understand what Jesus was saying to her, but what what is going in her mind is she showed a simple trust in what he said. If anything was going to happen, the servants needed to be on the alert to do exactly as this Jesus of Nazareth told them. Apparently, Mary, in this relationship with this hosting family, had some sort of authority or say in what happened at this reception. That's why she could tell the servants what to do. There's a lesson for us here, too. Mary didn't fully understand what Jesus meant, but she understood that her son was the Messiah and God. So what she did is that she just put a simple trust in leaving the situation in Jesus' hands. She didn't try to force something to happen instead. She just left it up to Jesus. She just said, if anything's going to happen, it's going to be all because of him. The ball's in his court. It would only happen by way of Jesus. So she prepared for it. Sometimes in our lives, there are situations that look impossible. We don't understand them. We've tried to understand them, but we just cannot see how God could work in them. We don't need to understand because we already know the one who understands everything. We can just have a simple trust in that if anything is going to happen, it will only be because of God. It will only come from God working things out. And all we can do is leave that in his hands and in his timing. It's scary. We all know that's scary. But there's also a type of peace and freedom that comes along with that too. We learn later on in John's Gospel that evidently this does end up being God's timing. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on that first Palm Sunday, he divulges that his hour had fully come to be crucified and then rise back to life again. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. At that point, At the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the hour had fully come. That was the first event that sent everything hurtling towards the cross and the resurrection. So back here in chapter 2 of John, the beginning of that process begins. Mary may have had a feeling and a sense that it was this timing, but it was not her right to be the one to initiate it. Once the one whose right it really was established it, then everything could start to unfold. Now, this wasn't being petty. This this wasn't God being petty, like the kid on the playground who won't give up the swing and yells, it's my turn now. 
We know that God had a certain order in his plan for what needed to be established before something else could happen. We've already seen this in John the Baptist's ministry. He admitted that he didn't know that his own cousin was the Messiah until God revealed it to him. And every time the demonic world tried to declare Jesus as the Messiah, before it was the right timing, Jesus rebuked them. And when the crowd wanted to forcibly make Jesus the king after he fed all of them with a few fish and loaves of bread, Jesus escaped, knowing it wasn't the right time yet. So just as John the Baptist didn't know about Jesus' true identity, even though he had grown up with him, until it was God's timing for him to know, God would be the one to establish when it was the right time for Jesus to be revealed through his miracles. Since it was now God's timing for Jesus to be revealed in this way, we read this, verses 6 through 7. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. There's a lot, a lot of symbolism connected to Jesus having the servants use these water jars. John says that these jars each held how much? 20 or 30 gallons of water each. Since there were six of them, to the simple math, this is about 120 to 180 gallons of water. And since the servants filled them to the brim, this is probably closer to 180 gallons of water. Why so much? Why so much water? As noted by biblical scholarship, this was enough water to fill a Jewish purification pool. The wedding guests were expected to ritualistically cleanse themselves with this water before and after the wedding celebration. The fact that John records that Jesus uses these obvious connections to the ritualistic aspect of the Jewish law is hugely symbolic. Jesus is providing a transition from the ritualistic understanding of worship of God to worshiping God through himself by using these jars. He also tells the servants to fill the jars with the water of purification, a symbol of the Jewish law, which he will turn into something that will represent the kingdom of God. The one initiating the kingdom of God, both on earth and eternal access to, is who? Thank you, Some, the person who whispered it very, very quietly. Jesus, yes. All of this is unbeknownst to the servants, though. They do exactly as Jesus says, verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. The head waiter was in charge of regulating each of the seven days of this wedding banquet. He was the one who was in charge of food distribution and regulating how much wine each person received. As such, he would be the one to blame by the wedding hosts for running out of the wine in the first place. By the time the servants took a ladleful of this water, it had become wine. And not just any wine, but apparently the best wine the head waiter had ever tasted. Verses 9 through 10. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, 
And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Note on these comments the head waiter makes about this wine here. All wine, as it's described in Scripture, would have had some naturally occurring alcohol in it. It was just part of the fermentation process. Pretty much immediately after grape juice was pressed, it would start to ferment, especially in this hot climate, and produce alcohol. While one of the main duties of the head waiter would have been the regulation of the distribution of the wine to prevent anyone from drinking in excess and to drunkenness, which would have A, ruined the party, and B, is consistently condemned throughout scripture, the fact was that because there was still alcohol in this naturally fermented wine, all of the guests' senses would have been dulled by a certain point in this week of feasting and drinking. Think about even if you got halfway through the week. That's a, that's a lot of days of drinking wine, right? As such, it was customary that the host serve the better tasting wine first, and then partway through the wedding week, when everyone's senses were dulled by a few days of drinking, the host would break out the worst tasting wine to save some money. That's just how it went. But the wine Jesus had turned this water into was apparently the best tasting wine the head waiter, who had overseen multiple wedding receptions, had ever tasted. There is a huge point to this. Remember, by this being Jesus' first miracle, it was hugely symbolic. Jesus didn't turn water into wine randomly or because he liked to party. There was a grand point to all of it. The water of purification that this started out as represented the Jewish law, while the wine that Jesus turned it into represented the now-initiated kingdom of God by way of the one who turned it into wine. Jesus. The law would always fall short, for as Paul wrote, its entire point was to point out to God's people just how sinful they really were, just how far they fell short of God's standard of righteousness, and just how much in need they were of a Savior from their sin. But the new covenant, which Jesus would establish with his death and resurrection, is eternally better, more beautiful, more fulfilling, and will last forever. Through the law, as Paul says, came realization of sin and therefore realization of death. Through faith in Jesus, in being the only salvation from that sin, came realization of life, both eternal life and full life in the here and now. Paul explains this clearly when he writes, he has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death. But under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Not only was this a symbol of Jesus being the transition from the old covenant into the new covenant, but the fact that he performed this miracle at a wedding is also huge in and of itself. If you remember from our previous sermon series on Jesus' parables, what illustration did Jesus use a couple of times to represent the kingdom of God? A wedding banquet, right? A wedding banquet. Why? Because the kingdom of God will eventually culminate in an awesome wedding feast between Jesus and his bride or the church. 
All those who put their faith in Jesus for his salvation from their sin will enjoy a heavenly feast with him one day in the future. The same author of this book, the Apostle John, records this heavenly revelation. All these heavenly revelations known to us as the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 19, he describes a heavenly celebration known as the marriage feast of the Lamb. Just before the millennial kingdom is established here on earth. All those who put their faith in Jesus now will be removed from the earth and caught up to meet Jesus in the air at a point in the future that could happen at any moment from now. That universal event is known as the rapture, when the souls of those believers who are with Jesus now will be brought with Jesus when he partially returns. He will reunite their souls with resurrected and glorified bodies, and they will join any other believers still alive at that point who will also be given glorified bodies fit for heaven. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that at that moment, we will always be with Jesus forever. Amen? So when we see the description of the heavenly wedding feast in Revelation 19, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. The celebration kicks off while we're all with Jesus in heaven following the rapture and then continues down on earth when Jesus physically sets up his 1,000-year-long kingdom here on earth. What a joyous time that will be, not only joining with our believing loved ones who have gone to be with Jesus before us, but with Jesus himself. As such, the wedding Jesus is at represents his relationship with those who will put their faith in him. They will be known as his church. Paul uses Jesus' relationship with the church to describe the amount of selfless love husbands and wives must have for each other in a marriage relationship. So even here, Jesus is setting up for that illustration, both for marriage and to show how far he would go, i.e. death on a cross, to show how much he loves his church. Furthermore, here is, so to speak, Jesus' first celebratory feast with at least some of his disciples and the emphasis on the symbol of wine used in it. Three years later, Jesus will have another feast with his disciples, but that time, the last one before he's crucified, and once again, the symbol of the wine is the emphasis. Not only does Jesus tell his disciples that the wine they were drinking during that last supper would be the last wine he would consume before the kingdom of God culminated in his death and resurrection, but this time he takes the wine to mean more than the coming kingdom. This time the wine would represent his own blood, his own death, and the establishment of that kingdom. Jesus' blood would have to be spilled in order for us to have any hope of gaining entrance into that kingdom. Lastly, the very first act of God freeing his people from Egyptian slavery was what? Turning water into blood, right? God took Egypt's lifeblood, the Nile River, and turned it into death. In other words, God essentially took life and turned it into death. In that way, God kicked off the process by which he'd bring freedom to his people. This culminated in the Passover lamb being the ultimate act of freedom for God's people. Here, Jesus 
turned water into wine, a symbol of his blood. Coming full circle this time, it would be Jesus as God taking something that represented death, blood, and transforming it into the only source of life. And it would come by way of the true Passover lamb and the blood of Jesus himself. Didn't think there was that much meaning wrapped up in the simple first miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, did you? All of that is hinted at for the first time right here with Jesus' first miracle. So again, this wasn't just Jesus turning water into wine. This, as his first miracle, was establishing himself as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and its law, and the initiator, by way of his own blood, of the New Covenant, the Kingdom of God, and the future heavenly wedding celebration of the Lamb. All of that is wrapped up in Jesus telling these servants to take some of this water to the head waiter. We don't know how much Jesus' disciples understood the ramifications of this first miracle and all the meaning wrapped up in it. But verse 11 tells us that they understood enough to have their initial faith in him as the Messiah confirmed as none other than God himself in verse 11. This is the beginning this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This tells us of their simple, childlike faith. Without complicating it with human excuse, justification, or criticism, they just believed in him. I mean, who else would have the power to perform this miracle? All of this took place not according to human timing or human understanding of what the best timing should be, but God's timing. We have multiple confusing and heartbreaking experiences in our earthly lives where we're only left with the questions, God, why, and why now? Most of the time, it doesn't make any earthly sense as to why God orchestrates certain things and allows for certain experiences of loss in our lives. And it certainly does not make any sense as the timing for when God allowed for it to happen. But as Jesus' conversation with his mother relates to us, we don't need to understand. Sometimes we can't even begin to understand why and when God does certain things. All that we can do is be drawn time and time again to Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, which says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Sometimes that's all we can cling to. We don't need to understand God's ways or God's timing. All we need to do is trust that he knows what he's doing and his plan is perfect. One promise we do have is that he will work everything out for good for those who love him. Every day we can cling to the one who holds the plan 
and holds the promises. And at the end of all of it, we know we will celebrate with him at the ultimate wedding feast in a time of pure joy, pure bliss, and pure peace. That's what we can see and hold fast to in this first miracle at this otherwise unknown wedding in the tiny town of Cana of Galilee almost 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of the first miracle of you. We thank you for all the meaning that's wrapped up in it. I pray that if there's anybody who is going through a rough time, or has just come out of a rough time, or that you will keep in mind for when we go through a rough time, I pray that we would let go of trying to understand, and we would just cling to the promise of knowing that your ways and thoughts are beyond anything we can imagine. You know what you're doing. Your plan is always perfect, and we can rest in that truth. And Lord, I pray that if anybody here has not put their faith and trust in Jesus for the salvation of their sins and the only entrance into heaven, I pray they would do so right now. And may we all look forward to you returning for us and bringing us to that ultimate wedding feast, that ultimate celebration where we can see you face to face and be reunited with our believing loved ones who have gone on before us. May we hold on to these promises and these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.